Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. To the 2021 edition of Still Watching, I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. We are kicking off this new year with a a new show. We are going to geekier realms than we've ever gone before. We are covering WandaVision, the new Disney Plus uh, show that picks up two characters from the MCU and plunks them in sort of a sitcom TV wonderland. Uh, we picked this show for a couple of reasons, but one of the reasons why is um, I thought that there was real potential for us to talk about it as a TV show and then also talk about it in sort of a geekier comic book kind of way. So basically, uh, not to use too much of like a cutesy Avengers Assemble, uh, you know, logic but we have assembled here for you on this podcast um a a, a crack team we're doing a podcast about a tv show about tv shows amazing we're going pretty deep yeah what could be better um so how how the structure the structure is going to be a little different from still watching episodes in the past basically richard and i are going to talk for the first half of the episode about the episode richard's impressions Richard has not done like the deep dive comic book research, nor does anyone have to, I think, in order to enjoy this show. And so we're just going to talk about the show as a show. If Richard has some questions and I feel like I can answer them for him, that's great. If not, whatever. In the middle of the show, there will be an interview with someone. Uh, This week, we have none other than Marvel Studios CEO Kevin Feige. So, uh, you know, I'm dusting off my shoulders for that interview uh, yet. So yeah, Kevin Feige uh, will be talking to us and we'll have members of the cast and the directors and like all sorts of stuff later down the road. Um, And then in the, in the final segment of every episode covering WandaVision, our colleague, Anthony Bresnikin, Richard will be gone and our colleague, Anthony (laughs) Bresnikin will join me and uh, we will talk really nerdy, nerdy stuff about the show. So I think there's something genuinely think there's something for everyone. I'm pretty excited about this. And, and when you said Richard's impressions, you meant my impression of Catherine Hahn, right? That's what you meant? I'm just I would like to hear lot. it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Ralph? I, I don't know. I can't. That's really good. can't do it. Yeah. I like it. Um, for the record, we, this week we are just going to be talking about episodes one and two. 
uh, because they both aired Friday the 15th. So you haven't seen episodes one and two of WandaVision. You might want to go watch them now. Uh, this is a nine episode season. The show's created by Jack Schaefer, uh, which uh, sounds like a dude's name, but it is a lady. And each episode is directed by Matt Shackman. Um, so you might be familiar with his name because he directed some Game of Thrones, but he also directed like 40-something episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And he was a sitcom kid star himself. Uh, he was on Just the Ten of Us, which is a show that I watched as a kid. So um, Matt is bringing all sorts of angles to the table. Um, and if you've watched the first two episodes of the show, uh, you might have already noticed this, but, you know, just to break down kind of the structure of WandaVision, at least for a time, and we're not sure for how long, each episode of WandaVision is going to coordinate with a decade of television. Usually there's like a pretty close one-to-one show analog um, in this, in these first two episodes. The first episode is a, is a Dick Van Dyke show sort of homage and the second episode is a bewitched scenario and it's supposed to take us like even though technically Dick Van Dyke show aired in the 60s it's supposed to take us uh 50s and 60s and then next week will be the 70s and then the 80s etc um but I imagine they're gonna run out before we get to the end of nine and and that I think is when the show is maybe gonna get a bit more marvely um, one last thing before I kick it over to Richard, cause I have some questions for Richard. Um, I just want to remind you all, uh, if you're longtime listeners of the show, or if you're just joining us, you can be a part of the conversation by emailing us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Any questions, be they basic or extremely detailed, uh, we would love to hear them. So, uh, let's go. And like, oh, one, I'm really, really excited about this because this is a, theory show and i love a richard lawson theory so <laughs> oh no richard <laughs> no pressure yeah richard uh, like what what do you know about like wanda and vision and the mcu going into the show like what are you aware of well i know what i've seen in the movies i have seen every of all of the marvel movies mm-hmm. um but very few more, very few more than once, though. Um, I know that she's from a made-up country. Her brother died, uh, played by Aaron Taylor Johnson in the Avengers sequel. And somewhere, also in that movie, Vision was born. He it was he's played by Paul Bettany. He used to be the voice of Jarvis, the Tony Stark. Yes. AI, right? Crushing um, it. And then something, something. He got created. Because he, I don't remember. Um, and then he died in um, either Endgame or the first one. Uh, Infinity War. Yeah. Infinity War. Yeah. Um, and that's where we last left both characters, essentially, right? With with um, with him dead, her mourning, uh, and, and, and seemingly to come into a fuller form of her power. Um but as Marvel has done in the past, like, and is going to do with the upcoming Black Widow, which um, Jack Schaefer wrote, um, this could be sandwiched in somewhere in that timeline. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. after everything, right? It could, yeah. Yeah. So we don't really know. Um, but I, I, what I, what's intriguing about the show, other than the obvious homages to sitcoms of old, uh, 
and seeing, you know, Marvel characters kind of within that environment um, is that it's my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, Joanna, that this particular conceit, this story is not actually based on comic book, one, one comic book narrative, right? Like obviously like they're pulling things from different, um, you know, iterations of these characters stories, but like this is new for television, correct? Yeah, I mean, uh, you and I were talking about this a little off air earlier today. The idea of Wanda and Vision being skipping through decades of television, that's a completely original conceit. Cool. Um, And I think it's born out of, uh, Feige has said, Kevin Feige has said, like, he watched a lot of Nick at Night as a kid. And so uh, if you, too, watch Nick at Night as a kid, you may also want to someday do something with your love of Dick Van, the Dick Van Dyke show. Um, so it came from that. But there is, I mean, there's a comic book called The Vision that came out in, like, 2016, 2015, I think, um, written by Tom King, which is about Vision creating a, like, little perfect suburban family of other little androids and they move to the suburbs so this that that idea of like vision and a, and a perfect little family in the suburbs i think was inspired by that book and then some of this other stuff that's going on with wanda which we will learn more and more about as it unfolds is from another pretty famous uh comic storyline that i don't even want to name uh you know in case it gives away the game but uh yeah so i think he's he's pulling from a couple things and then packaging it and as far as i can tell this was his idea packaging it in this interesting sort of exploration of the american family sitcom yeah and and it's also i mean if people are interested i mean and you certainly would know about this more than i do joanna but like it, it is it's interesting in in terms of where marvel entertainment as a company is and in, in in their you know um being owned by Disney and Disney plus and that this is the first Disney plus Marvel show. Um, and it wasn't intended to be, but it is now, uh, and is thus far a pretty big departure from your standard Marvel movies kind of story. And I think that's interesting just as a viewer, because we've, you know, we've seen a lot of Marvel movies and it's fun to see something different from this company, but, um, also, as a kind of first flexing of a little, a kind of newer muscle to be like this world that we've built, this cinematic universe, like we can kind of tweak it in so many way, different ways, you know, and, and in, in the way that the comic books have, you know, for the better part of a century. Um, and, and, you know, a kind of comedy sci-fi thing or whatever this is, um, you know, I don't think that that necessarily means we're going to get like a straight up, you know, black widow romantic comedy or uh, <laughs> a, a musical or whatever but right. like but but i think you know what however we feel and i know most of us have like kind of mixed feelings about the sort of marvel you know hegemony but like hegemony i don't know um but like look it's here we're not going to get rid of it um it is at the very least interesting to see what they do now that they can really do whatever they want really you know and um as a first based on these first two episodes, like as a, as a kind of first example of that, like it's interesting. And it's also interesting that as someone who thought maybe he was getting a little tired of the movies, even though I really liked Endgame, um, that like, I actually care, you know, I'm like into it and I, and I, and I'm, I'm happy to see, um, these, at least these performers again, I don't really know the characters well enough, but I guess maybe that's part of the, the point of this show. 
Well, yeah, I think they, they, you know, and they've said as much that they've been like pretty marginal, not marginalized, but, you know, like on the margins of a bigger story characters. And so this is a chance, you know, like basically Marvel looks in its stable and sees that it has like, you know, two glossy ponies in the shape of Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany. And they're like, why don't we let these... These people take the the spotlight, and I do think it's interesting. You know, like, uh, you know, I like Marvel a lot. I I understand some of the criticism of it feeling samey after a while. Um, I think cinematically they've proved that they're willing to go in different directions with like Guardians of the Galaxy or you know Doctor Strange. You know, there are some like there are some different flavors, but like sometimes it does feel like. French vanilla versus Madagascar vanilla versus like whatever, you know, whatever kind of vanilla. And then this feels like strawberry. Um, I don't know why I'm like talking about Neapolitan ice cream, but like this, this does feel to me very different. I'm so glad, you know, it was not the plan. The plan was to do Falcon and the Winter Soldier as the first one. And I think Falcon and the Winter Soldier, from what I know of it, would have been like a much drier sort of expected Captain America, Iron Man-esque, militarized kind of show. Action, action adventure kind of thing. Action adventure. And this is a yeah. genre, like a different genre. And I think, you know, stuff like the Loki show looks like it might be sort of like a Doctor who kind of thing. So I, I do think that, like, Kevin Feige having, like, you know, however you feel about Marvel, Kevin Feige having conquered Hollywood in a, in a pretty short time, um you know, making this massive crossover to film conclusion to this decade of entertainment, making the most, you know, the most profitable film in the world and blah, blah, blah. It's, it feels a little bit like he wept for, he had no more worlds to conquer. And then he was like, okay, what about TV? Didn't quite go that way. I think Disney was sort of like, we would like to see this happen. And, you know, some, some maybe, um, I don't know if it's interesting for people to know this, but, behind the scenes stuff is yes, there was Marvel stuff on television before there was like agents of shield agent Carter. There was the whole um, Netflix era with daredevil and Jessica Jones, stuff like that. And some of that stuff was good. Some of this stuff was not so good, but all that stuff was run by an executive named Jeff Loeb. Jeff Loeb is not in like that's Marvel TV versus Marvel studios. This is Marvel studios. This is Kevin Feige of Marvel studios taken his first crack at television and like you Richard I'm really excited that this is the project um that they're launching with, so. and and there is a tradition of this I mean I'm gonna I'm gonna frame this in terms I really know intimately mm-hmm. um you obviously have your flagship Archie comic that comes out every month and you have Betty and Veronica maybe in the you know certain days you'd have a pals and gals or whatever but sometimes there would be these shorter run like Ethel you know, installments yeah. <laughs> or, or yeah. a jughead or whatever. And this kind of feels like that. It's not meant to be, I don't think, a 10 season TV series. Um, it's just like a kind of little side narrative that does something different, changes a tone. So it's not like it's interesting to see Marvel Studios and the Kevin Feige of it all like do something um, for the first time for themselves, but like in the broader scope of superhero comics or really any kind of comics this is actually fairly standard practice so it's interesting to see it um kind of manifested in this way which it hasn't really before i guess you could call some of the movies sort of more spin-offy ancillary but really all of those kind of the leads of all those of those big movies 
are really central to the larger kind of Avengers narrative. Um, and not that Wanda and Vision aren't, but like, um, yeah. Anyway, this feels like your special run of, of Ethel Muggs. Comics, I guess. <laughs> no, I hear, I hear exactly what you're saying. And I think, you know, you'll, you'll hear in the Kevin Feige interview, we did talk about this, about like how the movies were comic book storytelling and how the TV might be even more comic book storytelling uh, in terms of like thinking of, seasons as runs and episodes as issues or something like that um and i think what's also interesting is that marvel studios and disney plus um they're really it feels like they're really committed uh, what has happened to television recently is that with the advent of streaming um you know um and and our fractured attention span um increasingly you'll see that television no longer has to be like Every season is certainly not every season is 22 episodes. Not even every season has to be 10 episodes. Not every episode has to be 30 minutes. Not every episode has to be an hour. It's like, we're going to tell exactly how much story we have. So for Wanda and Vision, I would guess it, this is a one and done season, even if it's fantastic, just because of the way that it's probably going to lead into some movie storytelling that's upcoming. But there's already rumors that Loki has been, the Loki show has been greenlit for a second season. So it's just sort of like, it's not going to be beholden to anything other than how much story do we have to tell about this character? Let's tell it in nine episodes that are 22-ish minutes long, maybe. Or some of the episodes are longer or some of the seasons are shorter. And that's, uh, you know, the, the freedom of that you know, you might only have six issues of Ethel worth telling. So there you go. You know, well, I don't know. That's not very fair to <laughs> Ethel. Um, but yeah, but I think and I think, you know, uh, kind of away from the Marvel of it all, but but cl- closer to sort of like TV discourse and, and, and culture, um, you know, I think about a show like Homecoming, um, especially, you know, the well, both seasons, but like the first season was so great. I like the second season, but but th- th- that's a show that 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 did, you know, moody, very stylish um, sci-fi comedy paranoia thriller in a half an hour installment, you know, and the thinking before them was like that kind of shows an hour and then a comedy is, you know, so I, I right, like that, right. that the, we can, that there's more, um, malleability with, 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 uh, format and, and length and, and all that. And, and I, I don't know, um, for, for me, I, I think that the, the format for this works really well because obviously it's mimicking a sitcom episode length, but, um, I, I like the kind of short burst, all right, onto the next kind of momentum of the show. I was a little nervous before I learned that the episodes were as you know short as they are, that it was going to be kind of a lot, you know, to kind of take in um, in, in, in any given sitting. But um, I think it's so far, like, pretty efficient and um, is representative of, yeah, just sort of more, um, I don't know, to progressive thinking about what t- TV can be. Right. And the way that... Um... Each episode, at least, you know, at the beginning is a sitcom plot that wraps, you know, there's stuff happening around the fringes and we'll talk about that a little bit. But there's each episode that we've seen so far, you and I have seen three episodes, but we're only talking about two, has like a sitcom plot, a classic sitcom plot that's wrapped up in 20 something minutes. Um, And that really makes this feel like actual television versus a six hour movie, which is like what so many, you know, TV shows like to call themselves these days. A lot of the a lot of the Netflix stuff, because it was bingy, you know, I could not pick out a single episode 
of even my favorite mm-hmm. of the Marvel Netflix seasons, which is Daredevil season one. Like I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. Um, but for this, you can just be like, oh yeah, the Dick Van Dyke episode. Yeah. The Bewitched episode. Like, you know, that yeah. the, these are distinctive chapters and that's, that's nice to see because, you know, I, it feels like television storytelling of this kind of is going away a little bit. And, and I like to see Kevin Feige doing a sort of a stubborn retro <laughs> version of it. I think it's great. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, all right. So what do you think is going on uh, in, in these first two episodes that you've seen, Richard? Well, um, I think it's interesting that uh, in the second episode with uh, Emma Caulfield from Buffy. Yeah. That was a fun surprise. She played Anya on Buffy. And I was mm-hmm. like, is that Kathleen Robertson from 90210? And then I was like, oh, no, it's another woman from that era who I loved on TV. Um, <laughs> but in that episode, when, you know, they're in in, her, in her, Emma Caulfield's character's backyard and the, the thing with the breaking of the water glass and everything, the radio is addressing Wanda. Uh-huh. And it's saying, like, who did this to you? So that leads me to believe that, like, maybe Vision still is dead, you know? And she is trapped in some kind of simulation or experiment or something. And she actually is sort of who the series is about more than it's about Vision, which would then, I guess, make it make more sense with the sort of continuity of the movies. Yeah, I, I mean, I really think that's kind of a, a safe assessment of what's going on. And I think especially stuff we see... Like in episode one, when, you know, the, the boss and his wife come over for dinner, played by Fred Malamed and the great Deborah Joe Rupp of, uh, you know, uh, that 70s show fame, uh, come over for dinner and he, uh, Fred Malamed is choking and um, Deborah Joe Rupp, who, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Hart, Mrs. Hart has, it's like this really creepy moment where she's like, stop it, stop it. And she's seemingly addressing, to my view, she's seemingly addressing Wanda. And then Wanda, once again, my interpretation is that Wanda kind of like releases Vision. She says, go help him. And Vision gets up and helps him. And there's also another, uh, you know, there's other things that happen that just really make me feel like to a certain degree, Wanda has some agency, though it's unclear how conscious she is of the agency that she has in this scenario. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it's, you know, it's a popular kind of genre or subgenre for a reason, but I I love the sort of like people realizing they're, they're actually caught Mm -hmm. in something that's not real. You know, obviously the matrix is, is a pretty big example, but I think there's actually less of that dawning awareness within the actual matrix of the matrix. He gets kind of taken out of it and then, explain to him but watching people kind of in game let's say let's call it like um is really fun um even in a movie like serenity the crazy matthew mcconaughey and hathaway movie that i won't spoil unless in case you haven't <laughs> seen it though i guess i did kind of just spoil that that's a simulation but but what kind of simulation um you know and uh i i just think there's so much cool potential that that i think this show seizes on uh, for just paranoid, creepy, yeah. um, just kind of nipping at the edges of something. And then to have that juxtaposed with all the brightness, the sort of really uh, like, you know, high intensity cheer of, of sitcoms of, you know, the mid middle of the last century. Like um, it's a really good offset. I mean, of course it reminds you of the Truman show or Pleasantville. So this show right. has its obvious Beyond the Dick Van Dyke show and, and Bewitched and stuff, it has other influences that are you know coming to bear on the series. But I think it's um, 
it's it it's the tone. Especially and that I'm glad you mentioned the Deborah Joe Rupp thing because that that is such a good creepy, uh, like what's like glitch in the Matrix kind of moment. Yeah, and there's a similar glitch in episode two, um, beyond the the scene with Emma Caulfield where she cuts her hand and the blood is red. You know, that's yeah. that's what gives you that nice Pleasantville vibe. Is like some things are in color, and you're like, what's happening? There's a little toy helicopter. Why is that in color? Um, uh, there's a scene where like this beekeeper comes out of, up out of the sewer mm. and vision sort of starts asking questions and Wanda kind of resets. It seems to me she kind of resets the scene. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. She says no or like, yeah. Like, yeah. 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 I guess I hadn't really thought about that, that she's much more conscious of the simulation than, uh, but I'm not sure how conscious. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that, that beekeeper scene is creepy and, and it also kind of brought, to mind like something like homecoming which really had all these kind of striking very strange visuals um actually there's a big bird in in both of those shows both of these shows um <laughs> that's funny um but well i should I, I guess the big birds in episode three sorry guys spoiler um but um yeah i i i think that uh i, I think also elizabeth olsen is is an interesting performer to be in this kind of thing because I think of her as more of a serious actress, not so much as a comedian. I, I think she's yeah. done some lighter stuff, but like, but you know, but this is a good kind of, I think a challenge for her kind of more comic side that I think she rises to. Um, but then also taps into something a little darker, like where she first, I think kind of rose to prominence in the Sean Durkin film, Martha Marcy May Marlene, which is about a woman who has escaped seemingly a cult, uh, and goes to live with her sister, played by Sarah Paulson, but is very tight-lipped about what happened to her and how she got out, and but is definitely scared that something is coming for her, you know? And it's a really unsettling um, like kind of mood piece of a movie. And she's so good in it, and I think she brings some of that kind of almost like double awareness into this. Like, she's trying to, like, be present, but also there's this other consciousness in her that's like scared basically or 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 not if not scared at least um alarmed about something so i think she, it's really it's really fun to be able to watch an actor playing a character they've now played in how many movies but getting right. to do something very different with it i mean similarly paul bettany like he gets to do he's so funny in the show i think and um you know um as Vision, he had some moments of comedy um, as Vision in the films, but mostly, you know, he's a kind of a stiff android. And this is a an excuse for him to, like, go full, like, Dick Van Dyke slapstick comedy, um, which I think he does really, really well. Um, and I'd love to see him do more of in the future. Um, you mentioned Pleasantville, um, Truman Show, um when Emma Caulfield showed up with her like super crisp blonde hair, I thought of Stepford Wives. Oh, like, fully, a, you yeah, know, yeah. there's like a lot of fun stuff going on. Um, the the creators of the show have mentioned uh, the Twilight Zone as sort of an inspiration. For for me, <laughs> it also has like a Twin Peaksy, uh, David Lynchian Blue Velvet vibe to me. That sort of like 50s suburbia, but what's the menace that's lurking in your hedges? You know what I mean? What's what's going on really around you? And and that that um stop it, stop it scene from the first episode just really gives me those Lynchian heebie jeebies, you know? Yeah, totally. So, yeah. I, I think that I, I I did file a review of the show that will be up when this airs, but um 
you know, uh, I, I talked about the good and I talked about stuff I have a little bit of concern about. And I think that one of those things, the major thing is I like that sense of creeping menace. Like I, that's a really effectively, uh, you know, registered thing in the show. But I also wonder how long they can sustain that without just being like, okay, here's what's going on, you know, because I think that, you know, having that be shifting into new decades and new sort of styles of television, I think that'll help keep things fresh. But at a certain point, we're going to get the joke, you know, of like, okay, now they're in, you know, they're doing the show thing. Um, so I wonder, I'll be really curious to see how the show plots itself in that way. Like how soon are we really going to have a much bigger picture of what's happening? Um, and, uh, you know, I, it's my understanding that there are already, there's already at least one character who's shown up who has a bigger relevance to the Marvel world. I sort of chose not to look into that because I don't Mm. really want, I don't want to be spoiled, but, um, but yeah, I'm just I'm I'm very very curious to see how much this ties into like the world of the movies and when it does, if it does at all. Yeah, uh, you know, I think that is that is a big question. We've only seen 3 episodes. There's 9 episodes. Um they're at least doing this sitcom conceit through Family Ties, Roseanne, Modern Family, The Office, like these are all things that they've referenced. But how much is that balance going to be um, the sitcom plot and how much is it going to be some of the other stuff that we see, like the beekeeper, like the stop moment, like the helicopter, like all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, there's some stuff in episode three that we'll talk about next week. Like, yeah, it, 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 I'm, uh, I'll be interested to see if people are willing to hang with it. I like this sort of steady creep in, um, but it, you know, it, 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 uh, it will depend uh, you know, we'll, well wait and see, you know? Yeah. It'll depend. And also, you know, um, it, it's asking more of its audience than a typical Marvel movie does. I mean, there are like, you know, mysteries in those movies or objects that need saving or finding or whatever. Um, and you know, they they set up pieces and then, rev- you know, tell you later in the movie what, um, where those pieces fit into everything. But, yeah. um, but, uh, there's also action scenes kind of keeping, you know, the sort of casual viewer engaged. And this, while stuff does happen, I mean, a lot of the first two episodes is just the high, the sitcom hijinks. It's the talent yeah. show. It's the, the, the boss coming over for dinner or the, you know, the sort of mistake of the phone call of like, he thinks it's the boss's dinner and she thinks it's the anniversary. Like a lot of these first two episodes is just that. And yeah. I'll be curious to see um, how that, translates into like fan attention and if it'll bring in different fans who aren't necessarily steeped in the the movies maybe they've seen a couple maybe they've seen none um but are curious about the kind of conceit of this show because i i do see a potential for it alienating some fans but also uh sort of engaging people who maybe have been resistant to the standard marvel movie format i completely agree that's my hope too that this is an entree for people um, into the Marvel world. But as you say, there might be some people who like their Marvel movies, you know, punchy, yeah, uh, right, who, yeah. who might, who might like, um, uh, you know, lose patience. So we'll see. Um, uh, the last thing I want to say, oh yeah, yeah, just, just to your point about like sitcom plots. I think what is interesting is like, I think the sitcom plots, there's a lot of like clever little cutesy references to like, Marvel stuff in here and you know we'll maybe Bresnikan and I will get a little bit more like easter eggy and stuff like that but I think I think the sitcom plots are also 
manufactured to give us hints about what's going on. Like this idea of like the sitcom plot of, oh my gosh, I forgot my anniversary or, oh my, I forgot what this date is. Also has this double edge of like, they can't remember a lot about themselves and that's creepy and weird. You know what I mean? Or this, like we have to avoid the town figuring out that, you know, uh, my husband is drunk at this talent show, um, is sort of like, it has to do with this, like paranoia, avoid discovery sort of thing. That was a very, that's a very bewitched thing. Like bewitched has a lot of like, um, parallels to sort of, I mean, I, 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 you know, for better, for worse, sort of like racial integration of neighborhoods or persecution of some kind or whatever, like Bewitched was sort of actively engaging in that in its very white way. Um, And so I think some of that sort of like persecution paranoia stuff is baked into the sitcom plot that they choose. So it's like it's it's acting on a couple different layers, but ultimately it is a percentage game, right? And so right now it's like, what 95 percent five percent 95 sitcom five mystery in the first episode and then maybe it ramps up to like 15 percent in the second episode and then like 20 eh, percent you know like like yeah you know and so i think it'll continue to encroach um would be my guess but i don't know so. yeah yeah and speaking of that evolution I, I i really appreciate in the writing how um you know aesthetically the the Dick Van Dyke homage looks similar to the Bewitched one, but there are, are are subtle sort of like advances in the way that characters interact with each other, what kind of characters are on screen. You know, we see a few people of color added in, in the 60s episodes or the Bewitched episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and and just like a little bit more bodiness, you know, st- like some some bedroom humor, you know, which would, would have been, I think, pretty unthinkable in the 50s. I mean, I, again, the Dick Van Dyke show was not in the 50s, but they're um, you know, like Leave It to Beaver would not really have jokes right, right, right. intimating anywhere near towards sex, you know. Um, right. And she's wearing pants in the second one and a dress he, in the first one. And they like push the beds together and suddenly it's one bed. Like I like that the bear, the borders of the episodes, like at the end of it's, it's really the beginning of episode two that the beds go together. But it should be the end of episode one because the end of episode two, they go into color. So it almost seems like we're transitioning to the next era of the fa- family sitcom on the borders of these episodes, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Uh, Well, is there anything else you want to talk about in these episodes? Well, I mentioned her briefly at the top as a joke, but like Catherine Hahn is so good in this uh, as the nosy neighbor. And I love that her husband, you never see him. Like he's this virtual character. Just this like (laughs) obnoxious man um, who she hates. Um, You know, I, I, she's great. I I would have to assume that an actor of her, you know, yes, her stature, but also her like ability um, is going to be put to some really interesting use as the series goes on. Um, which I'm really excited for. I'm really excited to see what Tayana Paris does. Um, she's also another welcome presence in anything she's in. So um, I, yeah, I'm, 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 I haven't been so, as curious about a show from just first two, the first two episodes in a while. So I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to see where it goes. And, um, you know, uh, I think it'll be really be helpful to do this with you because um, I am not always the, keenest observer of the sort of tropes that I should be paying attention to on, 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 and stuff like this. So I'm, I'm glad that you can coax me along. And likewise, I'm not always the best at seeing like the bigger picture of where it all sits in the larger cultural narrative. So I appreciate talking to you, Richard. Um, aren't we a pair? Mm-hmm. Um, all right. 
<laughs> oh, Ralph. <laughs> oh, Ralph. This, I love that Elizabeth Olsen is like doing this Mary, Mary Tyler Moore Rob uh, sort of thing. Uh, it's great. So, yeah, so that's that's it. I mean, there's just a lot. There was a lot to talk about, you know, to talk about a, a ramp up to the show and also two episodes at once. Next week, I think we'll have a little bit more opportunity to get kind of granular on an episode. Um but uh, that is it for us for now. We're going to go to our interview with Kevin Feige. And then after that, uh, it will be Anthony Bresican's turn. <laughs> um, and we will see you next week. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Hello. Joanna, that's such a professional microphone. I feel like I've got nothing here. Yeah, but I'm also in a closet, so, you know, it all balances itself out. Um, I've heard you say that, um, you know, though it wasn't originally the plan, that WandaVision is in some way the perfect show to launch this era of Marvel television. But I'm wondering what specific, I can think of reasons why, the masterclass and TV we get from it, et cetera. But I'm wondering, you know, what you think is it is about this show. Well, there, there are... Um... You're absolutely right. There are specific story elements that will unfold over the course of the series that tie into into the future. And and we've already uh, not been shy about saying Wanda will be joining Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness and Lizzie's in London now filming that. Um, But you're absolutely right. It's it's Marvel Studios' first foray into long form uh, uh, sort of TV storytelling being an homage and a love letter to the format of television and something that could only be done as a weekly um, episodic uh, storyline versus a a movie stretched out over six hours. We're going to do that too with other series that I think um, uh, uh, is awesome, but our first one being something that could only be done on television uh, does seem appropriate as our first uh, uh, entrance into that uh, medium. So you've got, you've got this also accompanying this, you've got this new series on Disney plus the legends sort of mini episodes that act as a sort of previously on Wanda and Vision. Exactly kind of thing. right. Exactly um, right. Whose idea was that in the first place? And, and what kind of freedom does that allow you to assume what your audience will know going into something? Well, uh, I don't remember exactly whose idea it was. Um, uh, the team at Disney Plus, the team at Disney Marketing, the team at Marvel Studios um, had that idea and wanted to put it... Uh, wanted to put it together. It is um, exactly what you said. It is basically a previously on, previously on the MCU, but also a nice reminder, even for us, I, there's nothing I love more than a, than a movie montage. I love it. I'm inspired. I'm a sucker for it. I'll watch any of it. And seeing it on our own pro- projects, it just doesn't happen that much. Comic-Con occasionally will kind of reel together that, that celebrates, I guess, the 10th anniversary and leading into to Infinity War and Endgame. There's a little bit more of it, but showcasing all the little clips of particular characters like like legends is doing um is very unique and fun even for us to go oh yeah that moment was great when vision when vision picked up wanda out of the train car as as sokovia was blowing up at the end of age of ultron um and and seeing all those moments together really is is doing two things one yes somewhat setting the stage for a show to come but also as a uh 
inspiration to go back and watch uh, um, all the movies on uh, MCU movies on on Disney Plus. Um, so it was a nice a nice way of doing of doing both and having just a little refresher um, attached to uh, to each of the shows. And we'll be doing those for all of the all of the upcoming series. Um, in in that Legends episode uh, for Wanda, um, you know, we are reminded of her of her origin in the MCU um, with Baron Strucker. I'm wondering for you. You know, the origin was kept a little vague. Um, and I'm wondering, post Fox deal, your ability to even say the word mutant in the MCU, how does that change your approach to telling Wanda's story? I mean, it's really just just given us more um, more uh, toys in the storytelling toy box, right? And more potential um, uh, for the future. And, and pretty much, you know, we've, we've said for a while, anything X-Men is still far, far out, farther out um, from what we've already announced. So it is, it is all about uh, the future as opposed to, as opposed to um, this show. That makes sense to me. And then you mentioned also this idea of being able to tell an episodic story like this one versus a six hour movie uh, that might be some of the other series. Um, when I talked to you before about this idea of the MCU being, the MCU, the filmic MCU being um, like television, you sort of push back on that. And you're like, no, it's more like how we tell comic book stories. And I'm wondering what is the, you know, is TV, is telling a TV story closer to how we have traditionally digested comic book stories in terms of the, like, is each episode an issue? Should we be thinking about it that way? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a way to think about it. We've often thought about the movies as a, as a run of comics as opposed to an issue of comics. Um, I guess just by the nature of the, of the shorter run times and the multiple episodes, you could look at it as a, as a, um, uh, 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 issue by issue, you know, I've always said the, 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 the experience of reading comics is not that different from watching a cinematic uh, storyline unfold. You're going through storyboards, you're turning the pages, the pacing when it's well done um, can be really exciting as you go from a little panel with one word on it and then turn the page and you got a splash panel across two pages, right? That, that rhythm is not dissimilar from editing um, into big moments on movies or something that's so exciting about TV and even the three episodes you've seen is having beginnings and ends every 30 minutes or so to have an interesting end, to have an exciting out. Um, all that's, you know, all, all inspired by um, uh, filmmaking uh, um, rhythms, which also happen to track uh, comic rhythms. You know, one of one of the byproducts of watching this uh, show is, you know, as you mentioned, you want to go back and you want to watch um, earlier Wanda appear in, and Vision appearances now available on Disney Plus. Um, but for me, I was most inspired to go back and rewatch A Knight's Tale, which is how I first fell in love with Paul Bettany of this like great comic performance. And he's had, he, you know, he's had to not had to. He's played it straight so often in his career since then. But he is this like great comedic force in the show it like brought me so much joy to remember that when did you realize that he was sort of the modern dick van dyke that we that we needed right now well it's um we knew right from the start that he and lizzie are spectacular actors that we had only scratched the surface of you go back and look at the scene between them in civil war where vision awkwardly walks through the wall and they say Liz, we talked about this use the door he's great He's great. He's funny. He's vulnerable. He's a super strong android. Um, 
and he <laughs> totally pulls that off. So it was, it was with great confidence that we knew we could go to these other places and these other eras and these other styles because these actors could, could um, uh, 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 meet that and exceed that, that challenge uh, uh, in, a great, in a great way. And Lizzie, um, in particular, showcasing, neither of them are a, are a laugh riot in the earlier movies. <laughs> right. Um, and putting them in, in, uh, in sitcoms we wouldn't have done if we didn't think they could do it. They exceeded our expectations on how, how wonderfully they adapted to it. Um, and authentically, I said in a conference, um, press conference earlier today, we did not want to make fun of old shows. We didn't want to laugh at, look how dated, look how silly these old shows were. We wanted to embrace um, the, the emotional connection that viewers had with them uh, over, the, over the years. And we, as the storytellers, had with them, and Lizzie and Paul, that's a fine line to do something that's funny and silly and uh, authentic. And, and they're spectacular. One of my favorite things I've heard you say is that, um, you know, this this show gets to justify all the time you spent watching Nick at Night. Um, and it's the same for me. My Dick Van Dyke show scholarship finally, like, gets to be aired out for the public. Thank you for that gift. Um, when you're when you're fleshing out the cast of people like Randall Park and Kat Dennings, and you've talked about these are actors who have experience with sitcoms um, and also happen to be in the MCU stable. So now I'm I'm just envisioning that, you know, at MCU headquarters, at Marvel headquarters, you have this this web, a wall of all these characters that you've previously established. And when you're cooking up new projects, you can just go to that wall. It's probably not a physical wall and pluck sort of options that you have. And you're like, we've got Kat and we've got Randall. Let's figure out a way to sort of engineer them into the story. Is sometimes, that a- Sometimes they are physical walls. Uh, okay. <laughs> on, on Infinity War and Endgame, we had cards, basically would look like trading cards, slightly bigger, um, printed up of every character that appeared in any movie. And they were up on the board. And Joe and Anth and Chris and Steve and Trin and I would sit there and look and pull from it. What about this? We could do this, this. Um, and in the case of WandaVision, uh, as as uh, many writers' rooms have, the storyline of each episode would be up on cards on the on on each of the walls. But in this case, they would be accompanied by the inspiration, the sitcom in the eras inspiration photos mm-hmm. uh, uh, printout. So it was quite fun to 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 see that. Um, and it really is, um, as the storyline was coming together, and Jack uh, uh, and Mary Lovanos, our executive producer, were in that room you know, 24 seven coming up with the, with the episode breakdowns and the overarching narrative of what WandaVision became. Um, there were just opportunities. We needed a character like this. We wanted a scientist or we needed a federal officer. We needed this. And because we have so many amazing cast members over the years, it would be like, well, this should, this could be Jimmy Woo. Do you think Randall Park would want to come back and do it? Or, well, you know, who has insight into this kind of technology theoretically over the years Darcy Lewis, Cat would be amazing, and and it is uh, you know a, a great uh, uh, privilege that uh, that they agreed to come in and, and do it and continue to play in our in our sandbox. So my 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 last uh, question for you is, or maybe my last, depending on how long it takes you to answer, is um, you know we, we're aware of the sitcom influences. There's also some early sort of filmic influences that you know you could pull out, Sefford Wise or Pleasantville, et cetera. But is there anything um, unexpected that audiences might not be looking for that you were keeping in your mind that influenced Wandavision? Well, Matt and Jack at the press conference this morning talked about Twilight Zone which was a big inspiration for uh, 
twists and turns and 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 stylistic. Uh, anything else of which there there are a few um, uh, would be spoilers for what's to come. Um, but it was always how to do that dance between what people have come to expect from the MCU and that level of of um, uh, that that style of storytelling, that widescreen cinematic style of storytelling, contrasted with and woven within um, the sitcom aesthetics. And some of my favorite things that Matt did in the show, and you can even, some people will see it, I think some people will feel it, are the aspect ratio changes. Yeah. Uh, that I just, I, I don't know anybody will care or notice, but I think it is so cool and really, uh, whether you recognize or not, you can feel that shift. You can feel things shifting, even if you're not sure why. And somebody can pause and go, no, look, the aspect ratio changed. Or maybe everybody can tell, I don't know. But uh, I'm, I'm excited about that. Uh, I'm going to squeak one more in and ask you then, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know that you might've imagined when you were making Iron Man that, that you, you know, audiences would be ready for something as weird as this. A lot of people mentioned Guardians as sort of the moment that the MCU really knew um, audiences could could hang with them through raccoons and trees, et cetera. But is there anything non-MCU related that people have been watching over the years that made you know that TV audiences were ready for something sort of as that go along for the ride with something kind of as off kilter as WandaVision? Well, I think um, I think almost any and every great peak TV or whatever you want to refer to it, premium, premiere, whatever the new age of TV is, um, it gives that example. I can't think of anything right now, but Game of Thrones and uh, uh, Stranger Things and um, uh, Russian Doll. I mean, name your name your great show that hooked you. Um, you have to figure out what's going on. You have to have the patience to, to um, allow the world to be revealed to you. And that's what a lot of great, really the TV that drives you. I'm very excited, even by this early feedback we've gotten on the three episodes that people, uh, some people like us respond to the Dick Van Dyke show and to that, to that technique. A lot of, almost everybody's responding to the mystery and what's happening. What does it mean? And where's it going? That's what hooks, hooks me in great uh, in great television. So we, we were very confident that um, uh, audiences watching programs week to week um, are expect that now and are, and are okay with that now. And the big turns, even episode stylistic turns episode to episode. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye. All right. Welcome to our final act, uh, if you will, of this still watching episode covering uh, episodes one and two of WandaVision. I'm joined now by my other fantastic colleague, Anthony Bresnikin. Hello, Anthony. Hello. Here for the final act of the show. <laughs> the curtain's the, coming down the, on us. <laughs> in the third reel, that's where everything is resolved. Although I don't think we're going to, we're not going to get that with these first two episodes. Resolution. So let me let me just sort of lay out the groundwork for what this section will be going forward. We're not talking spoilers, you know, like Anthony and I, I don't know, Anthony, if you've had a chance to watch episode so three, but um, I've seen episode three. We're not going to talk about future episodes. We're not going to talk about things, you yes. know, that were spoiled from like set photos or anything like that. Um, but what is fair game in this section, as far as I'm concerned, is uh, comic book material. And... Mm-hmm. Um, observations from trailer footage, I think is also allowed. 
That's what that's my rule. What do you think? Yeah, I think. Look, it's clear that WandaVision is designed to be a mis- mystery. It's meant yeah. to make you laugh. It's meant to to satirize in some ways uh, retro sitcoms, and it's made to make you go, "What is going on here?" Right. And the, it's a question the characters themselves are asking. So we're going to try to answer that within the context of this, but we uh, we have no foreknowledge of what's to come so what we are guessing is just guesswork we're not going to try to ruin it for you so uh you know if we say hey we think this is what's going on uh it's not uh we might be wrong right i i am often wrong as (laughs) everyone listening to this knows um so so let's start so so you know this is fair warning to everyone if you if you consider comic book knowledge uh source material knowledge to be a spoiler you might want to peace out and just call it a day. Um, I will say Marvel has never, to my knowledge, Marvel Studios under Kevin Feige has never, to my knowledge, directly adapted a comic book storyline. There's always no. some sort of twist or character swapping or something going on. So even if you know all the comics by heart, even if you know Civil War and everything that happens in it, you're still going to go into Captain America Civil War not exactly knowing what's going to turn out because... It's going to be different. They, they, the, they, I feel like they take ideas and relationships yeah. Yeah. and they grow a new story around that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, all that being said, I actually just want to dive in from the start and talk about the big book that a lot of people uh, think is the inspiration for what's happening here in WandaVision. And, um, and that is House of M. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the Brian Michael Bendis uh, joint, and um, <laughs> from uh, long ago too, from two thousand five. Yeah, and there's some evidence, or you know, not just pure speculation. There's some evidence around this. Like, first of all, let's say um, Elizabeth Olsen gave a, a long ago interview when when Age of Ultron came out. She said that Joss Whedon had given her like a, a WandaVision comics that. Uh, made her understand that Wanda was like the most powerful person in the world. And that's what got her really excited to play the role. She never said what the comic was, but like, that sounds like house of M to me. Um, Well, I might, I might have a little extra insight here. So, uh, but go, go forward. I might have a little clue because I did an interview with her on the set of age of Ultra, And she talked specifically about the house of M. So, uh, oh, never mind. Uh, uh re- resolved. <laughs> Do we have a little bell to ring for when we resolve a mystery? <laughs> yeah, a little like bewitched twinkle. Um, all right, resolved. It's House of M. Uh, she, yeah, she, she is never, except when talking to Anthony Bresigan, said that it's House of M. But she said in a recent interview that, like, this is the payoff for those books that Joss Whedon gave her. Um, and so, and then the last thing I'll say before I'm going to kick to you and ask you to sort of like summarize House of M for people who maybe haven't read it, uh, is there's a little Easter egg in the first episode when Wanda and Vision are hosting, uh, the boss and his wife for dinner and they're, Wanda's pouring wine sort of magically out of a wine bottle. Um, the label reads, uh, Maison du Mépris which means um, House of Contempt or House of Misery, House of M. So it's a House Mm -hmm. of M wine bottle uh, in the first episode. So we think that that is a loose, uh, you know, inspiration for what we see here. So Anthony Brezikin, do you want to tell listeners or remind listeners 
what the House of M storyline is. Yeah, so the House of M, uh, House of M is for House. They call it the House of Magnus in the story, but it's also House of Magneto because uh, Wanda Maximoff and her brother Pietro, who's uh, Quicksilver, uh, are the children of magneto in the comic books now that's never been the case in the movies because uh of the mystical magical world of character licensing (laughs) and (laughs) and x-men uh which was held by the uh our friends at news corps and the, the the fox uh the fox family the 20th century fox people you know, they made all the X-Men films, and they owned everything mutant. House of M uh, is also could also be, stand for mutant. And uh, the, uh, the good folks at uh, uh, Marvel Studios could not use things that were Marvel Comics characters that had been licensed elsewhere. So those were off-limits, so they could never... I'm, I don't, you might know better, uh, you might even know directly about this. I don't think they were even allowed to use the word mutant they couldn't, at all. They couldn't use the word mutant. Um, folks who have already listened to my interview with Kevin Feige, I asked him a little bit about this, if it was like easier to tell Wanda's backstory. Because there's some trailer footage that looks like we're going to return to like Wanda's origins with um, mm-hmm. Baron Von Strucker. Um, and I was, I was like, is it easy to tell her backstory now that you could use the word mutant? And he said, uh, you know, we're forward looking with the concept of mutant. We're not going backwards with mutants. Yeah. So I don't, even though they can say mutant now, <laughs> which may be why like Joss was like, love House of M can't do it <laughs> because of all the mutants yeah. that are in it. Um, but maybe this is the first payoff of that Fox deal, Disney absorbing Fox. And now they can do. I mean, I'm not saying there's going to be mutants in this uh, story, though there might be, but like maybe even House of M they couldn't touch because it's like, a, you know, it's complicated. <laughs> no longer that, complicated. Now, and, you know, the, the fact that they have uh, different versions of Quicksilver in both the X-Men movies played by Evan Peters. Yeah. Right. Uh, it, you know, and uh, uh, oh, remind me, who was the guy who? Aaron uh, Aaron it? Taylor Johnson. Aaron, 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 yeah, Aaron yeah. Taylor Johnson. So, so you had the same character turning up in in different movies. Uh, there was no Scarlet Witch, no Wanda in the X Men films, but um, there was a little yeah. girl. I think it was a little girl who was. Oh Wanda. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come to thank you for reminding me. No but but uh, Joss Whedon and the Age of Ultron people couldn't. They could use the characters because they technically existed in both. Um, licenses, right? right? It's just they had to be separate characters. And so we're going to see, um, uh, I think, a little more background into who they are. And the reason that they uh, devised in the original movies, in the Joss Whedon uh, Age of Ultron film, is the reason these twins have superpowers is they were experimented upon by, uh, is it Baron Strucker? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is he? I don't want to make sure I get his title right. Yeah, he he's a Baron. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't spend all those years in Baron school to be called <laughs> Mister Struker. But he, uh, <laughs> you know, that he was experimenting on them with Loki's staff, which we, of course, later learn contains the Mind Stone, right. which is used by Tony Stark to create the Vision. I know. I've always thought of them as like kind of soulmates, like little, little, like it's like having two halves of a best friend necklace. You know what I mean? Like Wanda and Vision are both created by the Mind Stone. 
Exactly. And yeah. that is deliberately, like I've heard from Kevin Feige himself, uh, that that's the reason she has such a strong connection to um, to uh, to Vision is because she's connected to the Mind Stone. They share this link. I love that. So, you know, and the Mind Stone, of course, uh, it uh, affects your perception. Sure, you know, it's always a little foggy. <laughs> right. What, what the Reality Stone does versus what the Mind Stone does. You know, there's a little bit of crossover in terms of territory and jurisdiction there. But, uh, but uh Okay, so there's a little bit. I think you need a little background on the movies in order to fully understand House of M. So House of M comes back comes out like in 2005, and what it does is resets the Marvel universe. It kills off some Avengers. Uh, Wanda Maximoff is she's sort of the MacGuffin of the story. I would say, wouldn't you agree, Joanna? She's not the main character. She's the inciting incident. Yeah. But so much of the story, which. Um, expands to touch spider-man and all of these other properties like to read the full house of m it's like something like 20 some comics uh but Is only it? eight yeah only only eight of them are like called house of m oh it's got like, you yeah because it like, spills out into the rest of the okay it spills yeah, up. Yeah. so what happens is she is she has lost her mind she has gone insane and she is manifesting different realities and pulling people into them. And the X-Men and the Avengers get together, led by Charles Xavier, and they have to decide whether to destroy her or not. I mean, that destroy is the polite word, to execute her, because she is a living, breathing uh, nuclear bomb, so to speak. Like, she can annihilate the world. She can change the reality. Her, she is an unstable element who could destroy everything, reality as we know it, right? So the debate is, does she, do we risk uh, saving, trying to save her life or preserve her life, or do we destroy her in order to protect the rest of the world? And like various heroes have different opinions about this. Like Spider-Man is like, oh, so if my powers go crazy, uh, you guys are just going to take me out? And like Wolverine goes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> And Wolverine says, like, say, I would expect you to do the same for me, right? Yeah. So it's one of those, like, things that Marvel Comics loves to do, which is to set up uh, a, a, a point of debate that has valid validity on both sides. Mm -hmm. And so Wolverine, I, I think I, it's fair to say Wolverine is, like, the central character in the, in the main spine of the yeah. House of M stories. Wolverine you know, and then, like, Emma Frost, I think, would be, like, the B player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wolverine is in the so he like wakes up in this alternative alternative reality where mutants are the dominant species and humans are subjugated by them and he has to try to persuade everybody uh that this is n not reality and he's and we have to switch back and uh and so that's how the story plays out I don't think we should go too deep into like the outcome because I think that's just the setup the setup in short, is Wanda has lost it. The Scarlet Witch uh, yeah, has gone insane. Uh, yeah, I'm going to push and, back a little bit on the whole, mm -hmm. like, she's lost her mind. Because I have, uh, spoiler alert, I have talked to Elizabeth Olsen. Not mm -hmm. spoiler, but I've talked to her. We'll have an interview with her going forward. I think there's been some pushback on some of the depictions of Scarlet Witch over the years in terms of this idea of, like, presenting her as this, like, hysterical woman. 
Do you know what Ooh, I mean? Right. And um, Elizabeth Olsen was very mindful that like that not be the case here in WandaVision. And, Jack, and we're not Jack talking Jacob about too. real people with mental illness here. Like I want to make that clear oh. too. Like, look, we're talking about fantasy. But I think I mean, but I think what's true is that she's like she's she's grieving. Vision has died. Uh, yes. She killed him because she's lost control of her powers. Her children have she has these twins with vision and other comic and her children have been revealed to her to have just been like figments like pieces of energy that yeah. she borrowed and got reabsorbed into this character of mephisto which we will talk about um and so she's lost her children and she's lost like her husband and so she's grieving and unable to cope and her cope her coping mechanism is you know it's a little more complicated than that but her coping mechanism is to create an alternative reality mm -hmm. that is happier for her and happier for everyone. It's not a, it's not a vindictive yes. alternative reality. She tries to give everyone what they want, yes. but it's not real. And mm -hmm. so if you, if you think about that storyline <laughs> yes. and you think about what we've seen in WandaVision and, and we know that when last we saw Wanda, she was grieving the loss of vision, the loss of vision. Um, you know, I think it's, I'm not sure it's exactly this, but I think a reasonable guess might be that this sitcom world that she's zipping around in is some sort of alternative reality that she has created to cope with her grief. Well, or the, the very least that she is generating, whether she intentionally creates it or not, right. is part of the question. Because Absolutely. Because the, vo the voice through the radio is like, who's doing this to you? Right. And you know... And and yeah, I don't mean to make it sound like she's completely hysterical, but she's volatile. She's absolutely unstable. She's yeah. she's she's unstable. And the way so here's where I want to drop what um, Elizabeth Olsen told me way back in the year 2014, which is talk about a different reality, <laughs> right? Like like imagine like you're in the year 2014 and like like you step through a a, a portal just to get a glimpse of 2021, and you're like, wait, what? You're like, yes. <laughs> Why is everybody wearing masks and uh, a game show? <laughs> a reality TV host is being, you know, impeached for a second time. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. so anyway, uh, she tells me my favorite of the comics is the House of M uh, because it gives you an end place for the character. So this is her at the beginning of playing Scarlet Witch. She goes. The Scarlet Witch just goes completely bonkers. <laughs> so now she's now she uses a different uh, terminology, but that was what she said at the time. Uh, uh -huh. That entire series to me is fun, she says, because you get to see the highest and the lowest points of her strength. Uh, you see the potential of a character, regardless of whether it has anything to do with what we're actually making in Age of Ultron. So, so she's playing, uh, you know wanda at the beginning of her powers but it, she's keeping in mind this is somebody who has tremendous abilities to manifest good and potentially be very destructive and she uh uh she can make something that exists larger than life that was my favorite because it's so extreme and she said she loves seeing you know all the ways these different characters can shape the whole world so there's been a lot of debate about who's the most powerful Avenger, and I think she would probably have agreed that Wanda is. Because I think it's can... absolutely Wanda. Like, and I actually think that's been a problem. Like, Joss puts Vision and Wanda into Ultron, 
And ever since, I feel like the MCU has been like, what do we do with these mega overpowered individuals? If you mm-hmm. watch those movies, the movies that they appear in, which are which is just Civil War, Infinity War, and Endgame, um, they have to go to great lengths to sort of like um, put those characters on the sideline because they're way too powerful. You know what I mean? And so like the uh, inciting incident of civil war is one, a losing control of her powers. And so she's afraid to use her powers. And at one point she incapacitates vision. So he can't use his powers. And then in infinity war, it's all about like, you know, vision being caught by surprise and compromised. And, you know, so it's like they can't play in the same pool as captain america however like impressive you may be because wanda can make you see stuff that's not there you know and so i just think it's been actually kind of a an interesting thought problem for marvel this whole time of like how do we keep these incredibly overpowered individuals fighting side by side with with our on the ground heroes you know and and that leads me to something i want to say about wandavision and this trope of using retro tv as it's uh, as its, I don't know what you would say, like as its platform, as its uh, as its way of presenting itself, that you have, um, like I'm not throwing shade at any particular show, and I think the Dick Van Dyke show, which is the inspiration for the first uh, episode of WandaVision, is brilliant television and was cutting edge in its time. But it was cutting edge because it established a language of sitcoms. It it turned what would traditionally be a play into a TV show. And since then, that formula has been repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over again to the point where all of the innovation gets kind of beveled off or lost in the static. And I think what WandaVision does is it shows us somebody who's lost in this haze of something that isn't really all that sharp or even all that funny, but just more benign and light. Like these sitcoms tend to be light rather than really like hilarious. Right. Because there's no discomfort in them. You think of the funniest things you've ever seen, and there's a little bit of like weirdness or awkwardness or uh, pain in them. And sitcoms are all about just sort of, they're just the Advil you take uh, to, to blunt the pain of existence. And so she's in this sort of halcyon, ex- you know, experience living, uh, oh, brought to you by Advil, by the way, our podcast uh, name drops some specific products. Uh, but, but I think she, I feel like she's living in this sort of numb existence and it's taking the shape of sitcoms. And, and that's how she, there's clearly some ugliness or pain below the surface right. that is being blunted. And she's finding things like this strange little toy helicopter in the bushes that has a symbol. Do you want to talk about the symbol? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about it. Um, so it starts with, I think the first sight, uh, sighting we see is the very end of episode one. We, the credits roll in this sort of, I love Lucy kind of way on Wanda and Vish. And then we like pull out and we see that they're being monitored or this thing is being monitored and we see a logo and the logo, it belongs to an agency called sword. Um, and if you recall shield, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. now we, you know, shield has fallen. Now we moved on to sword just this week. They, uh, Breskin, do you see that just this week they've announced that, uh, sword in the MCU means something different than it does in the comics. Uh, and it's just a sw- slight tweak, but it's interesting. Um, 
So S.W.O.R.D. in the comics is Sentient World Observation and Response Department, which sort of feels, it just feels like a shield, but make it galactic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in, the, in the MCU, it stands for Sentient Weapon Observation Response Division. Um, and so uh, I think that's interesting because what is Wanda, if not a sentient weapon, right? And it seems as though S.W.O.R.D. is observing her, right? So we see some sort of observation station watching Wanda. We see the logo on the little helicopter, and then we see it on the back of that weird beekeeper that shows up in episode Mm -hmm. two. And, you know, in addition to all the 60s sitcoms that we're starting with on this show, I feel there's a real homage to Lost, which I know you're a big fan of, expert on, is you have things like, you remember like, what's the polar bear mean? What's the smoke monster? (laughs) And like, you know, it's like, what's the beekeeper? Like the mysterious beekeeper who crawls out of a sewer. Like, I think things like this are just meant to make us go, okay, like it's meant to be destabilizing. And there's also a little bit of... um, uh, the usual suspects in this oh, show. Oh, how so? You know, well, you know, again, I guess spoiler for like a 20-some-year-old movie, but like the end of The Usual Suspects is so famous because like uh, Verbal Kent leaves the police department and the detectives realize all the names that he's been using are sort of taken from like the coffee mug and things he sees on the yeah. bulletin board behind him. And I feel like... Uh, you know, the little commercials that are the interstitials, the sort of uh, chapter breaks in each episode, those are meant to lead us to th- to see what's going on here. Like, I think by the end of WandaVision, we're going to have that moment that the detective has where it flashes to this, it flashes to that. And you're going to see how all of these things piece together and what they actually mean. Uh, so it's just a little theory of mine. Um but I think uh, I think we'll see it hold up. But of course, that also leads me to doing things like in the second episode, trying to scan the background and like the billboard in the background of their magic show. Oh, I did that the, too. Yeah. <laughs> and the name of the because we're looking at like the the name on the 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 wine bottle, right? And yeah. I think there's a clue there. But like, is there a clue in Wentworth's the name of the department store? Or is that just a '60s sounding? <laughs> I also rewound to to make sure that I wrote down Wentworth's. Um, it's. Can I tell you a, a theory that our producer Dave yeah. put forward to me that I really, really okay. like? So the beekeeper and the helicopter. Um, his theory is like Wanda has created a space for herself that is her reality, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever it may be. And if something enters that reality, she has to reinterpret it in a way that makes sense to her reality. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of the toy helicopter is like maybe there was an actual sword helicopter trying to enter her reality and it crashes and uh-huh. she interprets it as a toy helicopter or uh-huh. maybe the guy who's who's a beekeeper was actually like in a hazmat suit but she had to interpret it in a way that she could understand so it looks like a beekeeper to her um i love that idea i think I think it's 100% legitimate. I think it's what human beings do when we dream. How often have, like, you had an alarm going off to wake you up, and in the dream, it's like a telephone is ringing, and you can't pick up the handset because you can't stop the phone from ringing. Right. You know? Right. And it's like our brains do do that. And it's also uh, to actually venture into the realm of real mental illness. Um, you know, it's it's what our brains do 
when we're suffering from depression or anxiety, we we take things that objectively should not uh, should not uh, make us fixate the way they do, like with obsessive compulsive disorder. We take things like it should be fine to touch that doorknob. It should be fine to to not uh, obsess about a particular fear or or uh, 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 or incident, and yet we do our brains just sort of grind away on that and we try to find what's really happening is there's a malfunction in the way that you're feeling and you're trying your brain is trying to rationalize why you feel so bad right. you know what i mean right. it's a it's a it's a you know maybe a uh, an imbalance of neurotransmitters but you're trying your brain is trying to explain why you feel this way yeah and i think what she i think um you know like you know maybe that was in the writer's minds maybe that's not but uh i think it's a thing human beings do is they try to make sense of the world. It's what we're doing with this show. Like we're seeing all these random little things and we're trying to piece it together. Like we try to see shapes in the stars. We try to see faces in the wallpaper. You know, it's uh, I think there's a specific like scientific term for that. But I, uh, I think what we have here is a character who's very powerful, but she can't change the trauma that she really experienced. Yeah. She can't bring back the things she's lost. And so she's manifesting a whole other way. Right. And, and in house of M, uh, you know, she brings Hawkeye who she also killed. She killed vision, but she Mm -hmm. killed Hawkeye. She brings Hawkeye back to life. And Mm -hmm. so, um, this idea that like, she's brought vision back to life, but he's not real. He's like Mm -hmm. something she's created. And there's also these characters, this character in house of M, uh, this little girl mutant who can wake other people up that she's also mm-hmm. created. And that's one of the most interesting things about house of M is like Wanda's created this alternate reality. She's tried to create one that will make other people happy so that she is not hurting anyone while pursuing her own happiness. Right. Um, her own escape from a uh, trauma. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a part of her that has a conscience of some sort and she creates this little girl who can wake people up in this reality. And mm-hmm. and that's, it's almost like her saving herself from herself by creating that little girl. And so I think you see moments like that in these first two episodes or specifically in the first one when she you know, this, this man is choking the, you know, the boss who's over for dinner is choking and you've got his wife being like, stop it, stop it. Looking at Wanda and Wanda, it seems to me directs vision to, you know, it's a moment where Wanda has to acknowledge that she has control over this world mm-hmm. for a split second and do the right yeah. thing. You know, I, I also think there's an element of like, you know, like the, the nuclear, the damaged nuclear reactors at Fukushima, like people have to go into those to try to manage the the leaking of the nuclear material and to try to clean up, you know, and you can only go in for so long and you've got to obviously wear like protective gear. Um, but you're putting yourself at risk venturing into this dangerous environment. And we have uh, uh, the character played by uh, Tiana Paris. Yeah. Who, uh, who we know plays Monica Rambeau. Uh, but she is uh, Geraldine I- identifying herself as Geraldine. Yeah, yeah. But she even says something to Wanda like, why am I here? Like, what are we doing here? And I feel like the beekeeper and maybe Monica 
like they've gotten into this world right or they're trying to approach this world that wanda is in right and and yet they're consumed by it and they're absorbing you know let's say that radiation or that mysticism or whatever you want to call it and it's distorting their maybe maybe the beekeeper is able to be protected because he or she or whatever he is is you know we're not meant to recognize no but there is someone listed in the credits hold on let me pull it up i mean it's it's a it's not it's, it's a not, stunt man. It's not, yeah, it's a stunt guy. It's a Marvel stunt guy. It's not Randall Park or anything like that. So, like, I mean, the face may change, you know what I mean, once we see, like, who that really is. But for right now, it's not someone. Zach Henry. Is yeah. Him, and he, he's a stunt person and a stunt performer in a lot of different uh, yeah. Marvel things. Yeah. Um, but I feel like, uh, you know, we're, you know, maybe Monica is, you know, she on a mission and she's. Right. And yet she's been bedazzled. Um, what do they? I like the, the names, the show names that they come up with for themselves. Oh, glamour as, and illusion as performance. Glamour and illusion, like illusion is visions. That's a comic uh, book. Staging. That's a comic book reference uh, to. Oh. There's in in uh, Vision and the Scarlet Witch. I think the '85 run. There's a couple who are magicians who live, who are actually like super powered magic people who live oh. in the same suburban neighborhood as Wanda and Vision and their names are Glamour and Illusion. I thought that nice. was a fun little moment. That's a, I've been doing cool my point. homework, Anthony Preskin. <laughs> Very good. But also, I mean, just if you think about the significance of the names, to, an illusion yeah. is, a, is a fake thing. You're not really there. And, it to, and Glamour is a verb. That per- uh, you yes. Know, you can, right. you to can glamour bedazzle somebody. somebody. Yeah. You can, uh, you know, manipulate their minds. And so... That, yeah. That brings me to my next thing that I want to talk about, which is the character that Catherine Hahn is playing. Mm-hmm. Um, so her character's name in the show is Agnes, mm-hmm. and uh, she's the like wacky sitcom neighbor. Um, I do think that this is fair game to say that um, folks who know the comics very well have watched the trailers and noticed that um, Agnes wears a brooch. That is uh, very familiar to comic book readers. Um, it is worn by Agatha Harkness, who is a witch character in uh, the Scarlet Witch storylines. She is like she was the Scarlet Witch's uh, sort of mentor figure. She's an ancient witch, Scarlet Witch's mentor figure, but also her foe. And ultimately, like things go very bad for them and stuff like that. It's it's ups and downs. But uh, a lot of people have been wondering, like you don't put Catherine Hahn, who is an incredible performer. You don't put her in like just the comic relief role. So what else is she going to be doing in here? And, and like, you know, Agnes is like Agatha Harkness sort of elided and stuff like that. Yep. So a lot of people think that she maybe in the same way that Monica, like there's a couple options. Is she the one creating this reality? Did she manipulate Wanda into creating this reality? Has she entered Wanda's reality and been um, bedazzled the way that Monica was? Um, it all seems very possible, but I was, I was rewatching episode one for like the third time right before we started recording. And I noticed that one of the first things she says is charmed. Um, and so I just think like yep. looking out for yes. those like magical words, <laughs> um, is a, is a fun thing to do when you're watching a show. I think all, that's it. I think this is a show that's going to feel much different on the second watch. Yeah. All of those little things like charmed. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think there are, there are probably references built into the show that will we couldn't even possibly perceive their significance until the end. 
and then we'll come back and see like oh that that's what lobsters meant you know <laughs> something <laughs> like that i mean and, and like a fun thing that um yeah, so is Catherine Hahn playing the big bad of the season? Maybe a lot of comic fans think Mephisto, who is a big foe for Wanda, is the actual agitator. But if there is a Mephisto, we have no idea who might be playing him or her. My my sense of how Marvel likes to tell stories, I feel like they wouldn't put a Mephisto in here. I feel like they would just keep Agatha Harkness and hiding in plain sight and to the point where like maybe you think she's a, just a, a victim of Wanda's glamour until you find out something more this is pure hot hot speculation I don't know what's going to happen but that that seems like an interesting story to me that they I, could tell I, I think you're onto something and I think uh, I think there's definitely more to Agnes than we know um, the other thing I want to say, I mean, you mentioned the, the commercials. Um, mm -hmm. the first one is, do you think the first one with the burnt toast, the toaster, uh, forget your past, this is your future. Um, Stark industry toaster. Uh, do you think that's supposed to be a reference to like the ash on the toast? Like I was trying to figure out like what it would be a symbol for, like the, all the people who got ashed by Thanos, like what? What are we talking about? Is Vision a toaster because he's an android? I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm definitely overthinking these things. It was the Toastmate 2000. <laughs> uh -huh. I was wondering. I was hoping it would be the Toastmate like 5000 because then it'd be like I love you 5000. Mm. But like it was just the Toastmate 2000. Yeah. And there's a couple that like I think they're the same performers in each one. They are. Yeah. Uh, and then in the second episode, they're advertising a wristwatch, which is uh, Strucker uh, by Strucker. Mm -hmm. And what is it like? Strucker has time for you, or something? Or would they have like a little catchphrase? Even that's a little ominous sounding. Uh, but I don't, I don't quite know. It's and it's a, it also says Hydra made on the watch. Oh yeah, Hydra made. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was very funny. But um, yeah, I kind of feel like. Uh, maybe there's some, I mean, like vision was a Stark creation, so maybe that's what toast, the toaster is. And also Tony Stark is, is toast. <laughs> I don't know, like what that could, the maybe that's too on <laughs> the nose. Toast. The last, the, uh, the color I'm trying to, I mean, like we're probably, we've probably seen the end of the color intrusion because we've now moved into the colorized world of WandaVision at the end of this episode too. But like the blood, the helicopter um and then the blinking light on the toaster was red um uh, so i was trying to track all the color and see if i could come up with like a unifying theory and the and um, the toaster was also beeping in a way that made me think of a heartbeat or like a hospital room yeah where maybe uh, somebody's being sedated and their pulse yeah. is being monitored you know yeah and there's the ticking of the clock very yeah both of them felt very those two commercials felt very like time keepy tick 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 you know so oh uh, yeah, yeah you know and like and you know so maybe maybe wanda has been sedated and this is her dream mm -hmm. and yet there are people like invading that dream you know trying to get through I think the question for folks who are already like, yeah, yeah, yeah. House of M. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sword. We're, you know, you know, um, I think a, a question is whether or not we think sword is a friend or a foe. And like, 
I think there are ways in which Sword is being positioned here at the beginning as ominous, like it's monitoring her, the logo's on the beekeeper, all this sort of stuff like that. But I have to say, if Monica Rambeau is an agent of Sword, um, I think that's a misdirection. And I think they're trying to help her. Randall Park, who plays Jimmy Woo, who is a former S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, FBI agent, who is in Ant-Man and the Wasp, is in this show and in the trailer... And I believe that's his voice coming over the radio in episode two. Wanda, who's doing this to you? Stuff like that. Um, he's he's still an FBI. He's at least still wearing an FBI jacket in the trailer. So he's still an FBI agent. So I'm unclear if maybe the FBI is like coordinating with S.W.O.R.D. or something like that. But to me, I would guess that like S.W.O.R.D. is trying to help her, um, you know, or at least find a way to deescalate that doesn't have to end with them terminating her in some way, you know? I think you're right. That's my guess, too. That would be my guess, but I don't know. Um, all right. Is there anything else in these first two episodes that we feel like <laughs> was worth I talking about? I want to tell you a little more about that. Just, I think hats off to the way they've cast it and the way they've uh, created the sitcom world. It doesn't exactly match the style of shooting You know those old sitcoms like The Dick Van Dyke Show and Bewitched. But, uh, you know, there's a, an actor named Asif Ali uh, who turns up as, like, the neighborhood friend and co-worker of Vision. And, boy, his costumes and his haircut just calls to mind uh, Maury Amsterdam oh, <laughs> from nice. uh, yeah. Dick Van Dyke. Like, the style of it and the way, you know, even the nosy neighbor, you know, that that motif and um, Fred Melamud as as the oppressive stuffy boss and Deborah Jo Rupp, who I think, uh, you know, will be fun when she turns up in the seventies era episode, since we know her so much from the, that seventies show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they've really cast it. They've really done a great job casting the types and also shout out to, uh, Emma Caulfield, uh, who played Anya on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It was kind of neat to see her turn up again in, uh, in this as Dottie as the, uh, I love how you and you and Richard both writers. said that in almost the exact same way. Emma Caulfield, who played Anya in Buffy Vampire Slayer. We yeah. love our Anya appreciation on this show, so I'm I'm yeah. here for it. Yeah, I I I I really loved her as this sort of like queen bee of a of a neighborhood uh vibe that she was giving off. Do you think she has a more significance? I only because Yeah. She got cut. Because she got cut and she was like she seemed to be I can't remember exactly what she says when she gets cut. But it seemed to be another sort of like, I mean, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if everyone other than Agatha Agnes is a sword agent. Yeah. (laughs) Trying to get to her, you know? You know, it's like poltergeist where they tie the rope around themselves and jump into the transdimensional closet. Like, I think like these are people I'm thinking who got lost, who got trapped here. Yeah, yeah. You know, who came in and we're going to find out that like, okay, yeah, they all jumped down the well to save you. And then they stayed in the well. Yeah, that's what it seems like to me. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. We'll see if that pans out. But I, yeah, I feel like we're going to see these neighbor characters that we keep seeing over and over again or the hearts or whatever. Like, I feel like we're all going to see them in like a sword office at some point. You know what I mean? So um, once again, that's speculation, but that feels feels reasonable to me. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I'm really, I'm, I really like it. I think it's really clever. I, and, and what I like and, and why we structured the show this way is that I, it's really, 
easy to enjoy this on multiple levels. You can enjoy it on the level that Richard's enjoying it, which is just like, you know, very much not knowing the stuff about House of M, trying to sort of figure it out for himself. And you can enjoy it on the way that we are, which is like, we might know all these things. We might be really wrong about a lot of stuff, but we might have like, think we figured out some of the premise that doesn't make the show less enjoyable for me. It makes it more enjoyable. So, um, I'm, I, I really dig this show. I'm really happy we're watching it. Me too. And I'm happy we're talking about it. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) All right. Is there anything else, uh, you want to, you want to talk about before we go? I think that covers it. All right. So that does it for us. Uh, Anthony, until next week, uh, where can folks find you? Uh, you can find me writing away at VanityFair.com. You can also find me at VanityFair.com and on Twitter at Joe Rothis. You can find Richard at VanityFair.com and he's on Twitter at Rylaws. And we will see you next week in the 70s. <laughs>